a man was walking through an art gallery when he came upon a, a painting of Jesus hanging on the cross. So he stopped to take a look at it. He stared into the face of Jesus, so full of pain and agony, and a guard tapped him on the shoulder. Lower, the guard said. The artist painted this to be appreciated from a lower position. So the man bent down. And from his lower position, he observed new beauties in the painting not previously shown. Lower, said the guard. Lower still. The man knelt down on one knee and looked up into the face of Jesus. The new vantage point yielded new beauties to behold and to appreciate. But motioning with his flashlight toward the ground, the guard said, Lower. You've got to go lower. The man now dropped down to both knees and looked up. Only then as he looked up at the painting from such a low posture could he realize the artist's intended perspective. Only then could he see the full beauty of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. This seems to be true of our own worship as well. Only as we position ourselves lower and lower in humility can we recognize more fully what God, who God is and what He has done for us. Last week we saw this truth played out as we left with the 24 elders circled around the throne, humbly falling down in worship. If you recall, the Apostle John was in the throne room of God in heaven. And he watched as they cast their crowns before the throne, and they said in one voice, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. It was a scene filled with awe and wonder, praise and worship. And this morning, we are continuing with the same scene in the throne room. Nothing has changed. But amongst all the amazing colors and the light of God's glory, amongst the 24 elders and the heavenly beings that are beyond our imagination, 
something new catches John's eye. Something in the hand of the one who sits on the throne. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Should be up on the board behind me. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Let's stop there. We're told by John that the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, had a book in his right hand. This is the image presented to John. God has a book. The Greek word for book is biblion. And it's the same word for scroll. And since the use of scrolls was common in those early days, days before the use of books, scroll is more likely what is meant here. So we will use the word scroll instead of book. So we're all on the same page. According to John, he sees a scroll. And this scroll has writing on the inside and on the back. Obviously, John could not read the contents of the scroll because it was rolled up. But he knew there was writing on both sides of it. On the inside and on the outside. And the scroll had seven seals on it. It may look something like the slide you have up there. In John's day, important legal documents were rolled up and sealed with a glob of wax to keep the contents private until some authorized person was allowed to break the seal and to unroll the scroll. That was a common practice amongst the Jews and the Romans. A practice that would have been completely known to John and to the original readers in the Middle East. So what was this scroll? And why seven seals instead of one seal? There are a lot of ideas about the nature of this scroll. But the best I can tell, it seems to be similar to a title deed. Like a title deed to property. And for a little biblical history on title deeds, back in Jeremiah chapter 32, no need to turn there, I'll just explain it. Back in Jeremiah chapter 32, 
the Lord told the prophet Jeremiah to purchase a field that was in the land of Benjamin. Jeremiah bought the field for 17 shekels of silver. He signed the title deed and then it was rolled up and sealed. That seems easy to understand. But what's interesting in this transaction with Jeremiah is that there was also a second copy of the title deed. An unsealed copy, which was accessible to anyone who wanted to read a description of the transaction without opening the sealed scroll. Are you following me? Okay. Now it's my understanding that sometimes instead of creating a second open copy of a title deed, one could write a brief summary of the transaction on the outside of the sealed scroll. So that a person could know what the scroll was generally about without having to break the seal and unroll it. It's similar to a preview of a book or a trailer to a movie. And I think that is what is being described here with this scroll. And in regards to the seven seals, according to Roman law, documents like legal contracts, uh, will, last wills and testaments, and title deeds were required to have seven seals. So this scroll seems to be a title deed of sort, which signifies God's rightful ownership of the universe. And it also contains his plan to deal with the affairs of the earth. A plan from long ago to condemn wickedness. To bring those who will repent to the Lord, namely the Jewish people, to reward righteousness, and to establish the Lord's promised kingdom upon the earth. That makes sense to me, especially as we see God's plan being unfolded to us step by step, beginning with the next chapter in the book of Revelation. Well, the scene in the throne room continues. And John hears a question about this scroll. Let's look in verses 2 through 5. John says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book 
or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. God the Father wants to pass on the scroll like an inheritance. Giving ownership to the rightful heir. And so the question is asked by an angel, who is worthy to break its seals and open the scroll? But no one, no one raises a hand. No one approaches the throne. The saints in heaven don't step up to the plate. They can't. The thousands upon thousands of angels don't make a move, for they can't either. There appears to be no one who has the right, who has the power, or who has the privilege to take this scroll, to take this title deed, and to break its seals to open it. There seems to be no one who is that special And who is that worthy to come forward and take ownership of the universe. Then we're told John begins to weep greatly. Meaning he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. But why? Well, due to his reaction, it would seem that John has some idea about the nature of the scroll. He appears to know what it's all about, and he understands that if the scroll is not opened, all is lost. John understands that the scroll must be opened if things are to be made right. If pain and suffering and death are to come to an end, and if paradise is to be restored. And maybe more importantly, if there is no one found worthy to open the scroll, what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about his claims? What does that say about his promises? What does that say about his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? What does it say to John, who has placed his life and his hope entirely in the Lord? What does it say? So John is understandably distressed. This is huge for John. 
But then he is consoled by one of the elders, for there is one, and only one, who is found worthy. And he is introduced as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The lion of Judah. That may be a title that you have heard before. And it's the symbol of a king. Taken from Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. Where we are told, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God gave the scepter of rule to Judah. The tribe of Judah, beginning with King David, was the tribe of kings. And like a powerful lion who is on top of the food chain, the Jews expected a king who would rule like a majestic and menacing lion. They expected the Messiah to come from the royal bloodline of David, the root of David, to destroy the ungodly and to devour its enemies, namely the Romans who had invaded their promised land. They expected their Messiah to be fierce and forceful, But when Jesus came during his earthly ministry, he wasn't like that. Jesus didn't act the way they expected him to act. And that's one of the reasons why the Jews rejected him. In many ways, that's just as true for else as well. When the Lord does not meet our expectations. When he's not who we want him to be. When he does not do what we think he should do. There is a tendency for us to become disappointed with him. And if we are not careful to doubt him. So John hears the Lion of Judah is coming. And he likely expects to see a mighty and powerful and majestic creature. This is the image of the one he expects to take the scroll. 
So let's see what happens. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is John speaking. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne John hears about a lion But when he looks, he sees something completely different. To John's surprise, standing between the throne of God and the elders, John doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. A lamb that appears to have been slain. This lamb had been led to slaughter. And yet, he still lives. He's still standing. So obviously, he's not an ordinary lamb. He's a lamb that has overcome. Overcome sin. Overcome the power of Satan. And he has overcome the grave. This is Jesus. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. The sacrificial Lamb. The Lamb that God had personally sent to take away the sin of the world. So the Lamb that was slain is now the center of attention in the throne room. All eyes are now focused on Him. If we were to see a literal picture of this lamb, it might gross us out. But this was the symbolic image of Jesus that John was presented with. And it gives us several things to think about. When we consider symbols of power, we tend to think of of mighty beasts and birds of prey, such as those that, that represent nations or sports teams. But here in this scene, the representative of the kingdom of heaven is a lamb. Representing humility and gentleness and sacrificial love. We're told the lamb has seven horns. A two-horned lamb is a normal thing. A seven-horned lamb is not a normal thing. Again, this is no ordinary lamb. And obviously, Jesus is presenting himself in a symbolic way to John. In the Bible, horns represent power. And the number seven represents fullness. So seven horns represent 
the fullness or the completeness of his power, meaning he has unlimited power. We're told the Lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And we learned previously that refers to the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is Christ's agent sent forth into all the earth. He is ever present. He is always present. He sees all and he knows all. So to see Jesus fully, we need to see him as both the lion and the lamb. I was reminded in the line of uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Have you seen that movie? When Susan learned that Aslan, who represents the Lord in the story, was actually, she learned he was actually a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. At his first coming, During his earthly ministry, Jesus came as a lamb. But at his second coming, he's a lion. But he's good. Then the scene continues in the throne room. And we're told in verse 8, when he had taken the book the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes the scroll as an inheritance from the Father's right hand which confirms his worthiness. Jesus had been slain, paying the full price for our sin debt. He is the only one who did that. He is the only one who could. Only he is able to remove the seals and to execute God's plan. The Father allows the Son to take the scroll which symbolizes a transfer of ownership and sets the plan in motion. When Jesus took the scroll, several things occurred. First, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each of the elders was holding a a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of saints. 
I mean, this is a, a, this is a great visual picture for us as we are reminded our prayers reach the throne room of heaven. However, for the sake of context, I think these prayers are specifically related to God's plan to condemn wickedness, to bring lost people to repentance, to reward righteousness, and to establish the Lord's promised kingdom upon the earth. Now, if you notice, when Jesus took the scroll, the crying stopped and the praising began. Look at verses 9 and 10. We are told, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. At the beginning of this chapter, it was asked, who is worthy? That was the question asked. Who is worthy? And now the answer is given in song. The 24 elders sing a new song, a gospel song. And in this song, we are told that Jesus is worthy because he was slain. Jesus went to the cross to pay our sin debt in full. He purchased us. He redeemed us with his blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And not only that, he made us priests in his kingdom. And we will reign with him forever. It's a gospel song. Packed with gospel truth. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll because in his love and in his obedience, he purchased us. Little Johnny spent several hours building a small sailboat crafting it down to the finest detail. He carried his new boat to the edge of the river and then carefully placed it in the water. How smoothly the boat sailed. Little Johnny sat in the, in the warm sunshine admiring the little boat that he had built. But suddenly, a strong current caught the boat and moved it far from his reach. Little Johnny ran along the riverbank as fast as he could, but his little boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon, he searched 
for the boat without success. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, little Johnny sadly went home because he knew it would take a long time to build himself another boat. But what he didn't know was that downstream, a man found his boat and took it to town where he sold it to a shopkeeper. A few days later, on his way home from school, little Johnny spotted a boat just like his in the store window. When he got closer, he could see, sure enough, it was his Little Johnny hurried to the store manager. Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. Sorry, son. But someone else brought it in. If you want it, you'll have to buy it. Little Johnny ran home and counted all his money and had exactly enough. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, little Johnny hugged his boat and said, Now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. In so many words... Isn't that what Jesus did? He created us, and then he bought us. And it prompted praise by the 24 elders, and rightly so, because they represent the redeemed that were purchased by his blood. And then the praise spreads like wildfire. Let's pick up with verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb... Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I don't want to dissect this passage for fear of turning this beautiful scene into a bunch of snippets. But as a whole, 
in this closing burst of praise, all the angels, all the saints, every creature in the universe, without exception, are joined together to worship the Lord. And this praise and worship seems to be prophetic in nature. As if, as if John is given a sneak peek of the day at the end of history when all of creation bows down and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It seems that John gets to see the victorious celebration at the end before the plan is ever set into motion. We're told that because of his sacrificial and finished work on the cross, Jesus deserves to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And consider the irony here, suggested in part by by Warren Worsby. Listen to this. Jesus left heaven to dwell upon the earth as a man. Jesus was born in weakness. He died in weakness on the cross. But he is the recipient of all power. He became poor. And yet... He owns everything. Men laughed at him, scoffed at him, called him a fool, suggested he was demon-possessed. And yet, he is the very wisdom of God. He hungered and thirsted and became weary like any other man but now he possesses all strength. During his earthly ministry, he experienced humiliation as sinners ridiculed and mocked him. They disregarded his kingship and dressed him in a mock robe and a crown of thorns. But all that has changed now. He is a conquering hero. The Lamb of God who was slain. He is the Lion of Judah. Worthy to receive all honor and glory and blessing. When I considered this chapter... I am reminded that just as Jesus took center stage in the throne room, he also has to take center stage in my life and in your life. For he alone is worthy. In times of praise and worship, 
and in times of discouragement and doubt, we must not ever lose sight of who He is and what He has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this scene of a victorious Christ who was slain and who now reigns. I thank you, Lord, that you hammered home many times what it cost for our salvation. Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, became the sacrifice for us all. He did it voluntarily. He did it willingly. He did it sacrificially because He loved us. That is beyond my comprehension, Lord. But it is true. Father, I pray in our own lives, in my life and in the lives of those here, that Jesus would take center stage. That we would be different people. That He would be honored and glorified. And that we would step aside. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has to take center stage in our lives, doesn't he? Absolutely. It's one thing to say that here when we sing about Jesus and I talk about Jesus and we're in Sunday school talking about about him. That's one thing here, right? It's it's fairly simple to to make him the the focus of our attention. But what about when we walk through that front door? Then what? Then what? Is he center stage in your life then? He's supposed to be. It's just not here. I've said to you many times, if what happens in here does not have an impact out there, then what are we doing? We're just playing games. Absolutely, he has to take center stage here, but even more so out there. And I don't know about you, but the biggest competitor, at least in my life, is me. I want to take center stage. And I can't. I want it. I want to live for me. My kingdom, my will, my desires, my wants. Let's be honest. That's what this is about. Jesus, Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about his kingdom and his will, not mine. He knows I have needs, absolutely. But we got to get this right. And what does it look like out there? What does it look like out there when Jesus is is taking center stage in my life? What's that look like? You ever thought about that? What does that look like? That Jesus is, is takes center stage in your life. I was reminded of a passage this morning. It's a passage you know. It's the parable of the sheep and goats. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking. I'm reading from a, from a Holman uh, Standard Bible. This is Jesus talking. It's referring to judgment. This is about judgment. Jesus says to those listening, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer. I love this. The righteous will answer, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothed you when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you the righteous are asking Jesus this And the king, and the king will answer them. I assure you, whatever you did to the least of these, you did it for me. You did it for me. Wow. That's so beautiful, isn't it? the least of these. Those people on the bottom of your list. That's the, that's the, the, that's how it looks like out there. It's how we treat other people. It's how we love other people. It's how we care for other people. That's what it looks like to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. That's the practical application for loving God. Loving others looks the same as loving God. That's what he said here. That's what he said here.
that's kind of the question. Isn't it? Is 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 the Lord Jesus? Is he is he center stage in your life? It's a battle, isn't it? It is a battle. Because I want it. I want the spotlight on me. I want to be center stage. And that just can't be so. That can't be so. I'm glad you're here this morning. And I I surely hope that the Lord has blessed you this morning. Maybe you have decisions to make. Maybe you realize, you know what? For quite some time, it's been all about me. It's all about me. I've been center stage. And I want the Lord. I want the Lord to take the center of attention in my heart, my life. That's what John the Baptist said. Jesus has to increase and I have to decrease. I've said that. I've prayed that prayer many times. Lord, you have to increase in my heart. You have to increase in my life and I have to decrease. Maybe you realize that's what it's been. It's been all about me. It needs to be about him. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you. Maybe you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I have have talked many times this morning. He was slain for you. He paid your sin debt in full. In full. And he would ask that you respond to him. That you would surrender to him, place your faith in him. And that's all by prayer. I'd be glad to help you with that as well. Have the Lord lead you this morning. I just ask you to respond to him in obedience. Uh, let, me, let me pray for uh, our, our offering. Uh, our baskets are in the back there. And then also, we got a lot of food. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a lot of food. Yeah. <laughs> so let me pray for our, our fellowship time as well. Father, again, I thank you so much for, uh, for bringing us here. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. And Lord God, I do pray that he would just be just supreme in our life. And Lord God, we would, we would bow to him in everything. And that he would be first in our lives, first in our family, first in our jobs, first in our relationships. He would just be preeminent, Lord God. Help us to to yield ourselves to him, to be surrendered completely to him. May he be honored and glorified. Father, uh, we we come to a a portion where uh, we take up our our tithes and our offerings. Lord God, I I pray that that you would bless these monies for your kingdom work. Father, give us wisdom and insight as a church how to, how to use your money. And Lord God, bless the, the gift and the giver. Father, again, just, just use it. We understand it's yours. And we want to be wise uh, and careful stewards. And Father, for our fellowship, thank you, Lord God, for the abundance of food. Bless it to our bodies, Heavenly Father. Bless those who prepared food. Bless our fellowship, Lord God, with one another. May you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen.